1: If I asked you to guess how San Francisco residents are feeling right now, you might say unhappy, frustrated, disappointed, and you'd be right. But you might be surprised at just how widespread that feeling is. Residents feel ignored and like leaders aren't actually solving problems. People like Robert Zwissig, who said he's so disappointed in elected leaders, he won't be voting for any of them again.
2: Nothing ever happens. All they do is they come out and give speeches.
1: The San Francisco Chronicle has spent months conducting a thorough representative opinion survey of city residents to get a clear picture of what San Franciscans are thinking and feeling, and which problems they want solved most urgently. I'm Laura Wenis. This week, a survey of city residents shows they're unhappy, and they mostly blame government. What we found, why that matters, and for the poll skeptics out there, how scientific surveys work. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. Among a demographically representative random sampling of about 1,650 people surveyed by the Chronicle, the top problems were clear homelessness, crime, and affordability. And this was no casual online questionnaire. The Chronicle invested time, money, and effort into taking a scientific approach under the guidance of an expert so that everyone in the city can be confident these results are meaningful. When we asked folks how well they thought our various branches of city government were handling problems, responses were critical. Less than a quarter of respondents said that the mayor was doing a good or excellent job making the city a better place to live and work. For the police, that portion was 18%. For the Board of Supervisors, it was just 12%. One of the most common themes? People are tired of talk. They want to see results. We followed up with a few people who took the survey to hear more.
3: They just mm. like to
2: get out there and talk. Well, maybe they don't like to, but that's all it is, just talk. I think it's too much bureaucracy,
0: and I just feel like some, like a solution would come up and it gets struck down.
3: It just feels exhausting to keep saying the same thing over and over again. And here, you know, we hear you, we see you, but these things are not only not changing to what we want to see, they're changing in the way that we're asking not to go back to.
1: Doing a survey that is this scientific and geographically focused is highly, highly unusual, especially for a local news organization but it's also very important and valuable because it gives elected officials and media outlets a really clear sense of what the city's problems are so everyone can get to work fixing them. That's according to John Krosnick. He's a professor of political science, communication and psychology at Stanford University.
4: I've been doing research for more than 30 years on how people think about politics and how they form their opinions and have been doing that work through surveys. And much of my expertise involves how to conduct surveys well.
1: Krasnick is also the Chronicle's partner in the construction and deployment of this survey.
4: The folks who I worked with on this project from the very beginning made it vividly clear. They did not want to cut corners. They wanted to do this project as well as could possibly be done by scientific standards. And so for that reason, it sounded just like the kind of project I like to work on.
1: Well, after a rigorous process, we'll get into the methodology later, the results are in. And what residents said was that they want to see some movement on three main problems. And they were pretty unified about what those problems are.
4: And the number one problem, I will tell you, maybe was not surprising to you, as you said, homelessness. But here's the surprising part. If you ask a question like this in a national sample to Americans... If you say, what's the most important problem facing the country today? That the number one problem might be cited by 20-something percent of people, maybe a high of 30-something percent of people. In this case, homelessness was cited by 71% of respondents in this survey. There's tremendous agreement that homelessness is the number one ranked problem facing this city. Number two, coming in at 61%, is safety and crime the number three ranked problem, which is housing? And that is at 42%. And so these are huge numbers. There is unusual agreement. Now, certainly other issues come up, economic challenges in general, and uh, health and wellness being two others. But, you know, the numbers one, two, and three are the really big dogs in the room.
1: The silver lining here, he says, is that at least there's clarity. If any elected officials are unsure about what the public wants, well, it doesn't get stated much more plainly than in these survey results. The crime statistics in particular were striking to Krasnick.
4: Let me tell you that one of the questions we asked in the survey was, during the last five years, was any item you owned ever stolen from you, or did that not happen during that time? The result is 45%. So nearly one in every two people walking down the street in the city have had something stolen from them. That's successful theft. When we asked about, did anyone ever try to steal something from you but not get it? Turns out that's an additional eleven percent of people who said that happened. When obviously, when you put those two together, robbery or attempted robbery, then you know you're uh, heading up even towards sixty percent. And so, wow. Okay, there's. I guess it's not surprising then that if people are walking around uh, a little worried about their belongings in their homes, their belongings in their cars, their belongings in their handbags, that there is, you know, if you say there's a 50% chance over a five-year period that somebody's gonna try to steal something, and if they try, they're probably gonna succeed, you know, that's pretty distressing. But that's not all we asked about. We also asked about property damage. We asked about during the last five years, did anyone ever intentionally damage something you owned? And that ends up being 39% of the city. So again, uh, that intentional damage that, you know, that this is not the world we want to live in. And so that is discouraging as well. Furthermore, when we asked during the last five years, did anyone ever threaten you or attack you physically? So here we're not talking about stealing your stuff. It's talking about your personal safety. Again, if you sort of think about how many people might have been attacked or threatened, that ends up being 24%. So nearly one out of every four people walking down the street experienced that. So these are the kinds of personal experiences that people have been having. And what I would say are definitely non-trivial numbers.
1: Naturally, these issues came up in our follow-up conversations with poll respondents. Orlando Leon is worried by the reports of anti-Asian violence, as well as by his own observations with property crime.
5: I am of Chinese-American descent. And seeing that people, especially our elderly population, being assaulted in broad daylight, but thefts happening everywhere in the city. It it is concerning because I I do worry what happens if I'm driving someone. If I open my trunk, will someone see that and then try to break in while I walk away? Or what kind of clothes or accessories am I wearing and will I be a target sometime now or in the future? Now, what, what can or can't be done I think it's concerning when I see in the SF Chronicle, I've seen reported that it seems like our police officers, one, are under-resourced. So I think, I hope there is more support for providing the appropriate resources. But with those resources, will they be able to really approach the concerns of of us San Francisco citizens that we have
1: and, and how do we allocate that? David Gardner is tired of hearing about how expensive it is to fix things.
2: We have homelessness and drug abuse, and what I always hear is that we really need to work on mental health, and everyone's always talking about that's what we need to do, but there's never enough money for it, and they never put anything or they never put enough resources in there to make it work. So what I'm suggesting is that that's where the money goes, towards mental health. Make beds available for everyone who needs it. I don't care how much it costs. That's the problem. That's how you fix problems is go to the basics.
1: Day Eccles worries about how gentrified and wealthy the city's becoming. That's what he says is going to push him out eventually.
0: I don't see myself retiring in San Francisco. I'm going to have to move because one day I'm not going to be able to afford it here, and. It's just not the same city that i knew to, and I feel like I only have 10 to 15 more years here, and then I'm going to have to go. It's because I'm getting kind of fed up with the city, but I'm also, because of my retirement, I won't be able to afford this city.
1: Miles Anderson, a retired musician, says politicians are beholden to real estate interests because they're the loudest voices. So he worries that with this degree of social stratification, the workers that the city needs are just going to disappear. Who's
0: going to
1: service the
0: city? Do all the real work, you know? CEOs and high tech folks are, are sort of, I guess, good at that, but they can't keep a city running. Who's going to do it? Nope. They can't live here. They can't probably afford to live in the suburbs anymore. Not surprised anybody's showing up.
1: The survey also went another layer deeper, probing a hypothesis about what's at the root of some of these problems.
4: The perception that racism is contributing is impeding solutions is a view that's endorsed by 32% of San Franciscans.
1: We'll get to that after a break. While you wait, you can see more survey results and reporting about them at sfchronicle.com slash poll. In the survey, the Chronicle also asked about something a little bit more insidious than homelessness and housing racism the survey asked whether residents believe racism is a root cause of some of the city's most pressing problems and if it's getting in the way of us solving them here's john Krosnick again
4: and what's really interesting here is you know if you think back to the o j simpson verdict the united states was absolutely obsessed with the o j trial
1: simpson was acquitted of killing his ex-wife and her friend Opinions on the verdict were divided along racial lines, with African Americans largely supporting the acquittal and white people mostly outraged by it. Krasnick says the results on this survey question showed the same divide.
4: 25% of whites said they thought racism makes it either a great deal or a lot more difficult. That number is 52% among black Americans living in San Francisco. And in this particular case, it's an important theme here where the the perception that racism is contributing is impeding solutions is a view that's endorsed by 32 percent of San Franciscans said that racism is responsible either a great deal or a lot. 30 percent, in addition, said a moderate amount. Only 37 percent of San Franciscans said racism was responsible either a little or not at all. So clearly a sizable majority are pointing a finger at racism. And what that means is that if they're right, that addressing these problems in the city is going to involve the continued efforts to address racism.
1: I asked him how these takeaways are affected by the extremely low numbers of black San Franciscans living here after decades of displacement. For that matter, there are also very small numbers of Pacific Islander and Native American residents. Krasnick acknowledges that with such different proportions of different groups, some voices are louder than others. And he says surveys like this offer a chance to level that playing field.
4: What I would tell you, though, is I think even though I kind of took that opportunity to highlight a big difference in views of racism impeding solutions to problems in the city, that I see actually much more homogeneity. Uh, much more commonality of experiences across racial groups than differences. And so I'll just give you one example. When we ask people about have you had something stolen from you in the last five years, 43% of whites in the city said that happened, 54% of blacks said so, 43% of Asians said so, and 50% of Hispanics said so. And so you could say, well, you know, 50 percent, that's bigger for the Hispanics than 43 percent for the whites. That's certainly true. But it's not like there's 70 percent versus 20 percent. So what I see here are certainly some differences, but actually much more commonality in this survey.
1: That extends even to areas of the city where we know there are major racial disparities.
4: So we did have a question that asked people, how would you rate the quality of public schools kindergarten through high school in the city of San Francisco. And what we found here is really interesting, that 29 percent of whites gave a rating of excellent or good, 36 percent, slightly higher, gave that high pair of ratings among blacks, even higher, 47 percent among Asians gave that positive view. And somewhere in the middle, Hispanics were at 38%. So again, let me just recap. The gap goes from Asians saying 47%, excellent or good. Whites saying 29%, saying excellent or good. Again, you know, it's a difference. It's really a difference, but it's not a 50 percentage point difference.
1: Amara Santos, a student who was born and raised in San Francisco, told me what I'd heard from others too, that she's tired of not seeing real action from government but was looking specifically for action on racial disparities. If as
3: a parent of color says, I don't feel that my child is being taught the things that are helpful to them, or like I feel that my child of color is being like harassed by their peers or, or their you know, faculty members, kind of putting this like bandaid on like, you know, we're working on, on anti-racism curriculum and this, this and that, like this kind of runaround. That's not going to, that's not helping the problem, right? Looking at social issues as if it's it's kind of like this abstract thing that no one can control. That's just, it's just kind of, it's a cop-out, I think.
1: Santos and a few other people we talked to also acknowledge that elected officials have a tough job. It's hard to please everyone, and some of these problems are just so, so hard. That was Joe Long's take.
3: I think anybody in public office is faced with almost insurmountable problems. And I think it's an issue that has to do with government and politics right now. I mean, our society is so diverse. The needs are so complex.
1: Day Eccles, who said there's too much bureaucracy, also said there's not enough willingness to try new things. So even well-intentioned leaders who want to do right are hamstrung.
0: I love London Breed. I feel like her hands are tied because the the gentrification of the city has changed so much. And there's so much money in the city that nobody wants, like, safe injection sites. They don't want low-income housing in their neighborhood. I just feel like there's, like, this boundary line that nobody can cross to
1: to help people. Others, like David Gardner, were more skeptical of elected officials and their intentions. He holds government in general, and the Board of Supervisors in particular, responsible for problems not getting solved. But the corruption scandal that's resulted in several high-up city officials being removed from office or even arrested has him particularly disheartened.
2: I really. Loved London Breed when she first ran and was elected, and you know she's had a number of her own gaps that you know I don't feel that strongly about. I don't care if she went out and party; it doesn't bother me at all. But the corruption within city government, she just seems to be wrapped up in that to some degree, and I don't know how to how to untangle somebody from that, or if she even wants to be untangled from it. It's, it's whether that's just part of the. Part of what happens in government. It makes me think all the things that, all the good ideas that people do come up with are doomed to failure because somewhere along the line, someone's going to try to get some money out of it or feed something to somebody they know or something like that. It's just, it's hard to trust government when these things constantly pop
1: up. With such stark results and this kind of survey being so rare, I asked John Krosnick what limitations the data might have that we should keep in mind as we look at these results. I got a more optimistic response than I was expecting.
4: I think the first and foremost one that I think we need to keep in mind is that this is a slice in time, that this data collection happened in 2022. And I hope by five months from now, five years from now, if we did the survey again, we would get very different results. And so what I hope is that people don't use this survey to generalize beyond this moment in time. To say five years ago, people were miserable in San Francisco. Five years from now, people are going to be miserable. You know, We we don't know. We need to find out how things change. And I do very much hope that things do change.
1: He's not alone in hoping. Respondents generally might have had bleak outlooks on the future, but several of the people we followed up with talked about how things could get better people like Orlando Leon, who plans to hold himself to a higher standard when it comes to his civic engagement.
5: I'm sometimes the type of voter that that goes by, oh, I recognize that name, and I can't do that. It, as a responsible citizen, I really need to look in and read both sides, the pros and cons of all of our candidates, especially as November's rolling around. I do vote, so I am proud to at least say that I vote every time elections come around. So I think that's the one important message that I hope people will understand, which is that our votes are always still going to be important. Let's not forget that every single vote matters.
1: Nick Cifuentes was generally unimpressed, but not deeply dismayed with the way things are going in the city. He acknowledged that there are problems, but has hope we can get through them.
4: It's a real special
5: place to us and to me, and and it has its issues like every other city. But I think on the upside, there's just a lot of opportunity for this to just continue to be a really great place.
1: If you're going to decide to focus on solving a set of problems identified by a survey, you really have to trust the survey results. That's part of why Stanford professor John Krosnick says it was so important that this was done scientifically. And that level of rigor is costly.
4: In current survey research, there really are two pathways that a researcher can take. The inexpensive pathway and the expensive pathway. And if I just tell you that there's a choice between doing it and spend a little money or doing it and spending a lot of money, everybody would say, oh, could we do the cheap way, please?
1: And especially a newspaper.
4: (laughs) Exactly. And let's face it, right? Everybody's under budget pressures and journalism is under tremendous budget pressures. And so it takes a certain amount of bravery to say, no, we're not going to go the cheap route if it's going to compromise quality. And in fact, in survey research these days, the cheap route does compromise quality.
1: The cheap route he's talking about here is the less scientific, less difficult method of polling, where you draw from a pre-existing pool of potential survey takers, like those who have a certain subscription, where you can insert a survey prompt, or households that have a landline phone. Those surveys are popular because they're low cost, but they've also led to some serious mistakes.
4: What we learned over and over again, and most visibly in the 1940s, when the three leading survey organizations all predicted that Harry Truman would lose the presidential election to Thomas Dewey, when in fact Truman, of course, won, that was an important wake-up call. And when that happened, a commission of statisticians was brought together to figure out what had happened. And one of their principal conclusions was that there was no systematic sampling going on. And luckily, by that point, what scientists had discovered is the beauty and brilliance of random sampling.
1: Random sampling, as in every person in the group the survey creators want to know about, has an equal chance of being selected to participate. Not random, as in completely arbitrary. What random selection gets you is a representative sample.
4: So you might say to me, okay, great, so then what happened? And what happened is that survey researchers who cared about accuracy shifted over to random sampling and either went to a random sample of households to knock on doors and interview people, or when telephones were introduced to all American households, called a random sample of telephone numbers or mailed paper questionnaires to a random sample of addresses. And that random sampling was the dominant method for survey research until about 2000, when guess what happened? Silicon Valley invented the internet.
1: The internet.
4: And when the internet showed up, what did it do? The internet in this case, in the field of survey research enabled what I consider to be a very unfortunate development, which was that companies interested in profits from surveys proposed a new way of doing that research, rather than random sampling, to simply put ads on websites, inviting people to sign up to do surveys for money. And they succeeded. They got millions of people, they said, who signed up to do surveys.
1: Individual surveys weren't paying much, maybe 60 cents a piece, but people signed up and created a big ready-made sample pool.
4: The problem is they're not random samples, but they're so affordable that that methodology became irresistible. So many, many companies and academics, in fact, have gone running, not walking, toward that methodology and abandoned random sampling. So we're going back to relive the lesson that we learned back in the 1940s, because as you know, In 2016 and in 2020, we've seen examples over and over again where prominent surveys trying to forecast the outcomes of elections were wrong. And that was after many years of really high accuracy from random samples.
1: Let me be clear. The Chronicle did pay people for their time taking this survey. But it was a random sampling of people living in San Francisco, not a pool of people who make a little money on the side by taking survey after survey after survey. Krasnick and the Chronicle started with addresses.
4: And then we mailed letters to each of those randomly sampled addresses. And we used a new technique that Stanford University is importantly responsible for pioneering, which is a technique of displaying a $1 bill in the envelope through a little window that you could see from the front of the envelope. And so what we learned through research is that when people get mail and are trying to decide, is this junk mail or not? If they can actually see a dollar bill through the window from the outside of the envelope, they know this is an envelope worth opening. And that is exactly what was done. And that dollar was provided not just to encourage people to open the envelope, but more importantly, to thank them for opening the envelope and to thank them for reading the letter inside. And the letter said this is a research project being done by the San Francisco Chronicle to illuminate life in San Francisco and the opinions and experiences of people who live here. And your household has been selected scientifically to participate in the study, and we hope you will. If you participate by going to this webpage and answer the questions that are displayed there, we will send you a check for $20 after the fact. And so that provision of $20 is very substantial because for the vast majority of respondents, it took notably less than an hour to do this. And that's a significant way of saying thank you. And in addition, for households that did not participate, they were called on the phone and asked if they would be willing to do the survey, either online or actually over the phone. And so interviewers, when needed, for people who didn't feel comfortable getting on a computer or didn't want to do it, the interviewers actually read them the questions and the answer choices on over the phone, and people answered that way. And as a result, you know we got results from this survey that we can tell are highly accurate. That we can compare the demographic characteristics of the participating respondents to the demographics that we know to be in the city from the U.S. Census, and we can see that uh, the survey did a really nice job of characterizing the city, and therefore we can have confidence in the measurement of people's opinions.
1: Another thing about this type of scientific survey being so rare for a city paper to conduct is that we don't have a lot of points of comparison. I brought that up with Professor Krosnick too. The
4: only way we can do that in a scientific way is to ask exactly the same questions to truly random samples in other cities. And what I can tell you is that I hope and I believe that this Chronicle survey will be a model of success to show other cities what can be done and whether it's academics who do it or journalists who do it or government agencies who do it. Now, the interesting question is when we do it in those other cities, what do we learn by that? So if we find out San Franciscans are experiencing bad things more often than Chicago or less often than Chicago, what did we get out of that? And the argument I would make is that, well, if we find out that Chicagoans are experiencing these bad things more, or they're even more unhappy with their mayor or whatever, we could say, oh, well... At least we're not as bad off as they are. So it's a way to feel, you know, a little better about our situation.
1: Always an important pursuit, making ourselves feel better.
4: (laughs) Exactly. Or if, on the other hand, you know, we find out that we're worse off than Chicago, then, you know, that says, OK, we could be doing better. But we already knew that. We know we want to do better. We know we can do better. So I think it's tempting and interesting to do comparisons to other places, But it's also, I think, pretty straightforward that these results stand on their own, even without any comparisons. And what they say is that there are some really serious problems, great thing that the Chronicle has illuminated them, and the city and all of us in it need to come together in order to actually address these problems now that we have these clear indications of what they are.
1: That's exactly what we're hoping to facilitate. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SFNext project, whose purpose is to explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. We'd like you to be part of that. Do you have a solution you want the city to pursue? Know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. And you can find more survey results and reporting on them at sfchronicle.com poll. I'm Laura Wenis. Special thanks to engagement reporter Audrey Brown for conducting follow-up interviews for this episode. Next time on Fixing Our City, improving San Franciscans' financial health. Producer Cynthia Lopez test-drives a city program designed to help by taking a hard look at her own finances. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SFNext project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SFNext project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, Get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.